Welcome to The Joy Factor, a podcast dedicated to helping you create a path to joyful living each and every day. We're sharing inspiration from real people combined with practical tools you can use to unleash the playful and joyful spirit already inside you. Now, here's your host, therapist, life coach, and yoga teacher, Julie Hansen. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Joy Factor podcast. Today we're talking about sex education, desire, and how to up your game with your partner across the lifespan. My guest is Beth Boatman, and she's here to help us start a conversation that you'll be able to use to jumpstart your own discussion. Beth has a master's degree in human sexuality education is a certified sexuality educator, as well as a board-certified sexologist. She's currently a PhD candidate in family therapy at Texas Women's University, and she specializes in psychotherapy for individuals and couples facing issues related to sexual dysfunction, intimacy issues, chronic illness, and medical family therapy. Beth is a lifelong resident of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and she provides not only counseling, but also speaker presentations and professional trainings on sexuality-related topics. So we have got somebody today who knows her stuff. And just a reminder, we are going to be talking about sex, and the conversation may not be appropriate for young children or sensitive ears. Also, This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional counseling, but rather an educational resource on various aspects of joy. Welcome to the Joy Factor podcast, Beth. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Can you tell us a little about your professional journey and how you became Beth the sex consultant? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it actually is an interesting story. I was in college and I didn't quite know what to do with my life. Um, I ended up picking marine biology as a major and I spent a summer in Australia doing research off the Great Barrier Reef. And it was wonderful and amazing, but then I realized that I would be a researcher not really in contact with people or working for SeaWorld or something like that. And I didn't really plan for that to be the rest of my life. So I took a year off school and I did some soul searching and kind of just wrote down the things that really interested to me. Ever since I was little, I was kind of that kid in school that people would come to and ask questions about sex. I remember being on the school bus and people asking, well, what is this? Well, what is this? And I was not, I would be the one answering the question. So I've always been comfortable talking about sex. I've always been comfortable answering people's questions. So I ended up Googling how to be a sex therapist, found the American Association for Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which is basically the certification body for sex educators, counselors, and therapists, and went to um, a conference that they were holding and went to that conference and I felt at home. And everyone else around me, it just, it felt perfect. And so I went to Widener University, which is just outside of Philadelphia. They have a really, really great program in human sexuality. 
And I spent two years doing that, and I got my master's degree in human sexuality, and now I'm a certified sex educator and certified sexologist. Fantastic. So it sounds like you really went off and explored kind of an initial career path, but then at the end of the day, circled back to that kid who (laughs) was always the one that people felt comfortable talking to. Yep. Yeah, it was funny because whenever I ended up telling some of my close friends that I've had since elementary school, um, I'm like, oh, you know, by the way, I think I'd like to be a sex therapist or a sex educator. They're like, oh, well, that makes sense. I could totally see you doing that. <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, good. That's great. Well, and I have to ask, did your parent are your parents the ones who were giving you the information or Yeah, my parents what? my parents were really great about giving me like age appropriate sexuality information. I was actually raised Catholic. Uh but my parents were pretty good about I would ask a question and then either they do it together or just very matter of factly and most of the time in medical terms give me the answers. So it was it was a very different experience than a lot of experiences of the friends that I had at the time. What a blessing. Yeah. Probably that was very rare at the time. Yeah. I was also very curious, so I asked lots and lots of questions anyways. Well, that kind of takes us into um, my next question. When it comes to the topic of sex, there are so many mixed messages in our society. Do you feel hopeful about our culture shifting kind of toward a healthier view of sex and sexuality? I do. But of course, that's such a hard question to answer and say, yes, I feel hopeful because there's there's all this other stuff that (laughs) makes me lose hope. (laughs) Um, Right. (laughs) But then I do see what you're talking about, this cultural shift happening, people being more and more comfortable talking about um, their own sexuality and talking to children about sexuality. And I think that's something that there is that peace on the horizon. And I think that's one of the reasons I became a sex educator is so many people have questions, but there's um, not a lot of places where you can go and get really great answers. I remember leaving Widener, which is in Philadelphia, and People asking, oh, well, you're going to go back to Texas. You know, it's going to be so hard to find a job there. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's that's exactly why Texas needs me, because it's a little bit more conservative than the Northeast where I was in Philadelphia. And I was born and raised in Texas, so I'm very uh, aware of the culture and I'm very aware of the way people view sexuality. But I am. I am hopeful. I think the biggest thing that I would like to change is in the public school system and the way that comprehensive sexuality education is taught. I know that funding was just dropped for abstinence-only sex education, so that was just like a huge, huge goal that I really wanted to see happen. And so I'm, I'm hoping that comprehensive programs will be implemented and children begin to learn, you know, medically-based, factually-based information. Yeah, you know, even I have a nine-and-a-half-year-old and a seven-year-old, and even just yesterday, I don't know how it came up, but I said the word sex. And they both said, ooh, mommy said a bad word. Yeah. You know, and I certainly have never said that that was a bad word. But, you know, they pick that message up. Those mixed messages just come at, you know, kids at such a young age. So I feel hopeful, too, to, you know, having worked with teen parents in Texas. Yeah. 
and shared in the struggle of the teachers and the staff that, you know, we're trying to help these kids with just such limited information. So Right. And I think that one of the things that, you know, I've been asked is when is the correct age to have the talk? And my answer to that is that you should always be having the talk, right? Depending upon (laughs) Mm -hmm. their age, but starting really young because they start finding their genitals when they're young. And I think it would be so great if parents could give all the information and only information could come from the parents, but that's not possible in today's world. I mean, they have access to friends, access to media, access to lots and lots of information, and you need to make sure it's the right information. And so being there to follow up, give good information, fact-based information, but then also imploring your own family values behind it as well, I think is important. Right. So it's a real combination of factors. Okay. Well, I'm going to switch channels. And I'd like to find out what are your thoughts on, this is total channel switch, (laughs) but it's a question that a lot of my listeners and a lot of my friends, you know, want to kind of explore. So here goes. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on balancing different sex drives? Can you offer some guidance for couples when one partner's drive is higher than the others? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that's really common in relationships. And it's also something that can change across relationships. Often we assume that the male has a higher sex drive than the female, but sometimes that's not the case. Um, And sometimes it changes. And so being able to, well, the first and foremost, people should be having a conversation about it. And really healthy communication, being able to talk about it, because what happens is there's one person that typically has a lower sex drive and a person with a higher sex drive. And the person with the lower sex drive basically has control of when they're going to have sex. And so assuming that it's in a healthy, non-abusive type of relationship. And so... Being able to discuss that because the person with the lower sex drive will say, you know, I'm I'm not interested, I'm tired. And then the person with the higher sex drive will get kind of upset and almost take it as, you know, a personal blow. And then it will turn into this, well, now the lower sex drive person begins to make up excuses. Um, well, it's not that I don't want to have sex with you. It's that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so it turns into this kind of like passive aggressive way to communicate about sexuality. So what I really think is, is this idea of when you ask people what sex is, when you ask adults what sex is, they have this idea in in their head and often a very clear definition. Sometimes it's hard to pull that definition out of them. But when you're talking to heterosexual people, it's, well, penis and the vagina. That's what sex is. Mm-hmm. And I think that being able to offer your partner other options besides penetrative sex um, and getting more creative and finding other ways to connect physically instead of just saying, you know what, I don't want to, or, hey, let's have sex, comes across as, hey, let's have penetrative sex. And sometimes that is a lot of work. Sometimes you're Mm -hmm. just not feeling it. And so, having other options, getting creative, exploring each other's bodies. So that way you have something else to do, some other way to physically connect, but also respecting each other's boundaries. Great. And that that sort of takes us into the next question. 
um, and, you know, I'm hearing this theme emerge is that it's all about the conversation throughout kind of the lifespan of our sexuality. Mm-hmm. So as we move into, um, you know, the stage where we're, I guess, aging and getting older, what are the facts about sex as we age? And does getting older really affect sex drive or are there other factors that play a larger role? Well, I think the question itself, does getting older affect our sex drive? Well, yes, because getting older entails a lot of different changes. Um, it's not just physical changes, and physical changes do affect our sex drive. So when you're talking about women, sometimes it's menopause that kicks in that will affect a sex drive. Now, for some people, their sex drive diminishes, but for other people, their sex drive actually goes up and it gets a little bit um, higher. So it depends upon person to person. But you also have to remember, so you're just talking about, you know, the biological stuff that's happening. And during menopause, the vaginal lining and the vulvar tissue, so anything external like the labia and the clitoris, actually becomes a little bit thinner because the tissue is changing because there's not as much estrogen going to it. So that can change things as well. But you also have to think about other factors, not just biological or physiological. So psychological factors. A lot of people have empty nest, right? So mm-hmm. they or they they retire and that completely changes the way they connect as people. So I had was talking to someone the other day at one of my classes and he said, well, you know, our, our kids moved out and they're adults and we're grandparents now. And our identity has always been parents together as a couple. We've just always been parents. And now, although we're still parents, we don't have to parent these kids. And so now we don't really know how to work together anymore. We don't know how to teamwork. We've kind of are trying to find our identity again. And that can absolutely impact the way that a couple has sex or basically physically connects with each other. Another thing is, as you get older, you start losing people. You typically go to more funerals as you get older. And so this idea of grief getting more involved in your life can absolutely affect your sex drive. And then all of these things to say, once kind of coming back to this idea of expanding your definition of sex, and there's multiple ways to connect physically and be intimate with each other without having to have penetrative sex. Although penetrative sex is really important for some people as you get older, the likelihood of illness showing up is high as well, especially something like cancer. And there's lots and lots of more cancer survivors nowadays that that there was, say, like 20 years ago, because, Mm -hmm. you know, cancer treatments have just gotten so good. And people often don't think about how illness, chronic illness is going to impact their sex life or their intimate connection with their partner. And that's, that's a pretty big deal for a lot of people after they've gotten past that survival mode, then they have this, well, now what do we do? I guess now we're just trying to survive, but I still want to have a quality life and quality marriage and quality relationship. So there's, I think there's a bunch of different factors that kind of all play a role. So if there's somebody out there listening that says, yeah, that's me, what do I do? You know, how can I begin to sort of establish that identity after, you know, maybe a major health crisis? What would you recommend to them? Like what might be some initial steps in terms of, you know, rebuilding that intimacy in some form or fashion? Yeah, so it it depends upon the illness. It really kind of depends upon 
the way that the illness has impacted their body and their physicality and kind of their mental status as well. But in general, what the research says that couples who renegotiate the best after a chronic illness, so we're talking about renegotiating their sexuality after a chronic illness, often did it well before the illness. So they often mm-hmm. had a healthy sex life before the illness. And one another thing is, is that they're more creative with each other afterwards, and they're more willing to open up to this idea of introducing things like toys, introducing assistive equipment, and also being forgiving when someone is unable to do something and not just say, oh, well, then I guess it's not worth it, but saying, okay, well, well, what else can we try? What else are you able to do? What else can, you know, just keep asking what else? Yeah, so that sense of not only having the, that skill set to begin with, but also, you know, recognize the importance of forgiveness and staying curious. Absolutely. And I think that another thing is this idea of erotic fantasy, which typically if you have a low sexual desire or you're not interested in desire, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about desire later, but this idea that you have an active erotic imagination is important. Well, and speaking of desire, (laughs) how do you define desire and what can committed couples do to cultivate more of it in their relationship? So I think that desire and specifically I'm talking about like passion and romance and kind of that heat of wanting to connect and be with each other. So at the beginning of a relationship, we're, we've fallen in love and we have really high levels of dopamine in our brain. So we're basically addicted to the person that we love. And over time, those levels of dopamine tail off pretty dramatically after about two years. So some of the things that you can do is naturally raise levels of dopamine with your partner in safe ways. So there are a couple ways that dopamine gets raised. So one of the things that you can do is something almost mildly scary or a little bit new, like going to a cooking class together um, or going to dancing classes. You're a little bit worried about how you might look, but you've never done it before and you're kind of excited. Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing that you can do recently, I think it was around Valentine's Day, and I'm located here in Fort Worth, and someone had told me, oh, they have this really interesting thing where they have this zombie experience haunted house for Valentine's Day. And I was like, what? That's the weirdest thing. And actually, so many people are going to fall in love. So many people because they're going to go to that and get scared and hold on to each other. And their dopamine levels are going to raise. And so (laughs) thinking about things that are mildly scary but not life-threatening, right? Uh Um, Things that have some novelty to them. So trying something new together. Um, and then another thing that you can do is begin to activate the emotional memory part of your brain. So one of the things I ask as a clinician when a couple comes to me is I ask them how they met. And often that's a that's a pretty good story. Every once in a while, it's, it's an interesting story. But often it's a good story. And you can almost see this connection that they have because we'll start like jumping in. Well, you know, you remember it was this and then somebody mm-hmm. smiles and then somebody, you know, eye contact. And there's this there's this great place in your memory, in your brain that holds emotional memory. And it lights up a little bit differently for people who have been together a long time than it does for people who have been together for only about a year. 
And so thinking about those memories and also doing something like getting the other senses involved and recreating your first date or wearing that cologne that you used to wear, that perfume that you used to wear, you know, thinking about all the ways that you can reconnect and try new things together. It's actually really, really important in a stage of life during retirement when you're beginning to you don't have a job anymore. You want to pick up new hobbies and maybe you're an empty nester and thinking about ways to reconnect and learn new things and kind of get the brain going. And it kind of gets, once you get the brain going, kind of gets the ready, rest of the body going. Oh, those are excellent ideas. And I love that, you know, again, we can turn to science to kind of figure out, well, how can we get that dopamine releasing again? And I would have never thought that something mildly scary, uh-huh. you know, would... <laughs> It's like going on a roller coaster ride or watching a scary movie together. Those things absolutely raise your levels of dopamine. Another thing yeah. is just like touching each other, reaching out, holding each other's hands. That physical touch actually lowers levels of the stress hormone. And so if you have someone to hold, have someone to cuddle, it lowers stress hormone and releases oxytocin, which is like the cuddle hormone and that connection. So oxytocin is released during labor, uh, like childbirth. It's released during uh, breastfeeding and it's released during orgasm. And so when you feel really connected to someone after you've orgasmed, that, that's oxytocin in there. Wonderful. And we all need that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. you. I just feel like we could talk all night, but <laughs> <laughs> we've got just a couple of minutes left and um I just would like to know if you're ready for the Choose Joy round. Sure, absolutely. All right. What's a daily practice that you believe contributes to your success? I don't do anything special like go running in the mornings or really anything. But, you know, one thing I didn't realize that I was doing is every morning I get up. I'm I'm not a morning person. I know some people can just jump out of bed and get the day started, but it, it takes me like two and a half hours to get up and going. But I always have tea in the morning and I sit with my hot tea and I look out the window and I watch the birds. And I know it sounds so strange. I I sound like someone who's in their 60s, which I'm really excited about becoming in my 60s. I'm really excited about it. Um, But I sit and watch the birds and think about the things that I'm thankful for in my life. I, I heard this thing. I think someone had posted on one of my social media accounts the other day about I think it's envy of always being somewhere else. This idea that, well, if I move to this city, then I'll be happy. Well, if I go here, then I'll be happy. If I have this job, then I'll be happy. And But often we find when we get those things, we're not actually happy because it's something within ourselves. And so looking around and just being thankful for the things that you already have. Mm-hmm. So much we can learn from the birds. Yeah. <laughs> And <laughs> I just love I just love watching them in the morning. There's a beautiful red cardinal that's at my bird feeder every morning. And it just it always puts a smile on my face. Oh, I love that because I love cardinals, too. And I think that, you know, it's such a simple thing. It's simple. It's free. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. We can access that. And it really does. You know, anytime we connect with nature, it really does bring you right back into the moment. Yeah. All right. Do you have one or two online or entertainment resources you'd recommend to help our listeners support their own joy practices? Yeah, I don't. I don't typically do um, a lot of online or really even watching TV. But one of the things that I, I have long drives 
And I love to listen to um, This American Life. I actually have an app where I have all the podcasts, like all of them since like the early 90s on there. And it's it just the time goes by. I don't get upset at the traffic. And sometimes it's a nice break from like the political talk that's on the radio right now. So This American Life. And then I also listen to just started listening to um, Snap Judgment which is storytelling with a beat from NPR as well. They're great. Nice. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I have really enjoyed talking to you and really appreciate that you took the time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Julie. It was it was really my pleasure. All right. Thanks so much. I hope you found today's interview interesting. I really enjoy talking to Beth and think it's so important to have more conversations like this. Sometimes we don't know how to get those conversations started, but I hope that you will take this opportunity. Our sexuality is a part of us, and when it's not viewed in an affirming way... Or when we're taught that it's wrong or dirty to talk about sex, I think our whole society suffers. Asking questions is a powerful way to reclaim a healthy approach to the topic of sex. Today's show notes are going to include best contact information, as well as additional resources on the topic. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for listening to The Joy Factor. For more information, visit www.thejoyfactorpodcast.com.